Good morning. Today's passage is from Mark chapter 14, verse 1 to 11. It says this, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and then kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people will riot. When he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. They rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for a burial. Truly I tell you, Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give Judas money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 1 to 11. The thing is, for me, I've always been the kind of person who is cynical. Pretty, pretty cynical, actually. Uh, I like to be above knowledge. I like to know what's going on. I like to know what is happening right now. I like to know what is going to happen and predict what's going to happen. I want to be the smartest person with the view of what has happened in the past. And much of my Christian life has happened alongside doubt and cynicism. But this passage always breaks my cynicism. Throughout this series, we've been asking sort of this question of, uh, of knowing what we hope for. What is it that you actually hope in? Do we understand who Jesus is? We, we look at his life and we ask, is he worthy of our trust, of our belief? Is he worthy of our lives? Ask the question, you know, do we know who it is that we hope in? And a strange thing happens. And this is, this is I think, hard for us, not just for me. Man, this is so hard for us. Trust and belief and hope has to be expressed in worship at some point. At some point, all of the hope and all of the belief and all of the ascent and all of the striving to understand who Jesus is, eventually it has to produce worship. Worship is challenging. It's to, it's to put someone above you and to call them worthy. Cynicism is much easier. To analyze Jesus like a, like a thing in a lab, or to review Jesus like a purchase that we've made. 
To write reviews like we do Yelp about Jesus is much, much easier. Because worship is bringing together the heart and the mind and the body into one response. Cynicism safely builds a wall between the mind and the heart. And then it builds a chasm between those things and the body. Today, we're at the last moments of Jesus' life before the cross. The last human moments before history is reversed forever. Before everything is altered and everything is made new and nothing can ever go back to the way it was. And in that moment, we see the most famous worshiper of Jesus. And alongside her, we see cynical bystanders. What we also see is what it looks like when we find Jesus to be worthy. First, there's this woman. She's she's so famous. Jesus says, everyone's going to know about her. All of the gospel accounts include some version of this story in it. She's likely someone from the margins, from bleak circumstances. Many have theorized that she was a prostitute, someone who, who Jesus had called out and befriended and all of that good stuff. Maybe Jesus had rescued this woman. Maybe this woman, many have believed, was the woman who uh, Jesus defended with the famous lines of, he who has not sinned cast the first, throne, the first stone. And maybe she was that, that person. What we do know is that Jesus met her in her suffering met her in a moment where it seemed like there was nothing else that could happen for her. We know that Jesus had, had somehow encountered this woman and her, her whole view was changed. Her whole being, her whole life, in some way, transformed. We know that Jesus met her in suffering, in the depths of being marginalized, What we also know with a high degree of certainty was that even in this moment, she was still poor. She was still on the margins. Yes, we can assume that Jesus had encountered her and rescued her and and brought some sort of redemption or forgiveness or friendship into her life. But make no mistake about it, even in this moment, she's clearly someone still at the margins. She wasn't out in the clear. She hadn't been lifted up. She hadn't pulled herself up by her bootstraps and now everything was living comfortably and good. And that's why she gives this great offering to Jesus. By all practical accounts, she probably would have lived the rest of her life the kind of hard life that many of us are terrified of. The rest of her life was probably not knowing whether she would have food next week whether she would have safety for a year or she'd have a home at any moment. She likely, this woman, spent the duration of her life depending on others within the church in Jerusalem to meet her physical needs. This is the kind of life that terrifies us. And yet, 
She worships. She worships. A woman from a hard life, a woman still in a hard life, worships. Michael Card, a singer, a songwriter, also incredible writer, he wrote this book, uh, Sacred Sorrow. And in it, he says that true worship begins in the wilderness. He says praise is almost always the answer to a plea that arises in the desert. There is no worship without wilderness. There can be no worshipful joy of salvation until we have realized the lamentable wilderness that we have been saved from. Until we begin to understand just what it costs Jesus to come and find us and be that provision in the wilderness, he says. There is no worship outside of the wilderness. And in this, she, this wilderness that he's describing is these desert places where life is out of control. These, these moments of fear and trembling. These moments where we're unsure of the next steps, the next days, the next meals. Where it seems like everything that we had before was turned upside down, which I know we all can resonate with because just two weeks ago we had a completely different life than we have today. Desert places, the moments in the storm. What Michael Card is saying is that there is no worship until we've been in the desert and we've cried out with all of our souls for something to save us, to restore us. This woman worships wastefully in the desert places our souls likely understand this morning. And from that desert, she finds and she looks to Jesus as someone worthy of the most precious thing that she has, the, the, the greatest material good she has. She breaks it and anoints Jesus. It's almost like Samuel anointing David. It's, it's like all of the prophets anointing kings. It's like this moment where you would expect some high priest with rich, fantastic garments to come to Jesus and anoint him and say, you are the king of the entire world, but it's not a fancy dressed up priest. It's a woman who comes from a hard life who's still in a hard life and she breaks everything that she has and she pours it down over over his head and anoints him as the one worthy of her entire life. And that is the beginning and that is the sum total of worship. Jesus is worthy. His grace, his love, his compassion, his power, his healing, everything that we've seen in the, in the whole gospel of Mark, and as we've asked this question, does he really change everything? In this moment, eventually, you have to come to the conclusion that he's either worthy or he's not. And if he is worthy, what's produced is not intellectual assent, but it's a giving of your entire life. But then there's these other people. These other people. 
these cynics. They rebuke her. Fancy word for shutting her down, belittling her, criticizing her. They come in all smart. Those watching, the hosts, those observing. Couldn't she have done something better? Here Jesus is dripping with with the perfume, anointed as a king, and they're saying, I wonder if something better could have happened in this moment. I wonder if this is really the greatest use of these resources. And here's what's fascinating about these people, these bystanders. They're not the priests, they're not the religious leaders, they're not the people that are going to hunt Jesus down and kill him. No, they're the people that saw the same Jesus that this woman saw. They're the same people that walked with Jesus through storms and through uh, trials. They're the same people that saw Jesus deliver people out of evil and wickedness. They're probably the same people that saw this woman be rescued and saved by Jesus. In fact, the, the biggest irony is that the host of this party was someone with leprosy, someone who had been on the outskirts of society, sick, sores all over their body, an intense quarantine, you might say. And that person was likely, this Simon fellow, was likely one of the people healed by Jesus and now was brought back into his full life, his big home where he could throw these lavish parties This person who'd gone from isolation to community, from sickness to health. And he looks on at what's happening and he's thinking, I think, I think maybe there should be something better done here. I don't know if, if it's worth all this fuss. I don't know, maybe she should have cared for the poor. The disciples, the host, they find her worship wasteful or at the very least, lacking wisdom. I think some of the questions that the cynics ask is, is Jesus truly worthy? Isn't there a better use of her time and her money? That's really the question. Isn't there a better use of her time and her money? Couldn't she make a bigger impact some other way? We should only worship in this way when it's responsible. We should only truly give our lives like that when there's no other good that we could do besides that. Worship is a luxury of the palace, they might think. When everything's good and settled, when the kingdom is fully come, that's when we really get in on this worship thing. Worship, they're saying, is not the greatest impact that we can have on the world the cynic says we have to do something. Isn't that a drive within us, even in this moment, to do something? When grief hits us, when the world is changed, when we don't know what we're going to do tomorrow, when we suddenly have all of this free time, let's do something. 
Let's make a difference. Let's heal the world. Let's, let's care for the poor. Let's care for the vulnerable. Let's give all of our money. Let's do all of this stuff. Let's do something. Let's not sit and worship Jesus as king. Because see, the cynic at the end doesn't really believe that he is king. They're also asking, is he able? Is he able? Is he able to actually care and redeem and restore this world? They're also asking, is she really worshiping to get God to perform? It doesn't really make sense to them. Worship should really only happen if there's some sort of quid pro quo. Is she, maybe she should be worshiping Jesus uh, only if there's some sort of guarantee for some better life, which maybe many of us hope in right now. Worshiping and waiting and longing for the day that, that life will will be put back together. Yes, I'll worship Jesus. Maybe like the cynic, I think, will say, I'll worship Jesus when my life is put back together, where there's no more pain, there's no more hurt, there's no more struggle. That's when. That's when I'll do it. Doesn't this lady know she's still poor? Maybe for you. Doesn't doesn't Jesus know? I'm still struggling. I still have these pains. I still have this problem. I'll wait until God's really done something grand. Is she trying to get something from him? They might have wondered. Or maybe this was just their predominant thought. Jesus doesn't need the perfume, the nard, the the worship. Jesus doesn't really need this. And this is what the cynic doesn't really understand. This is what my soul often forgets and doesn't understand. It's not that her worship was part of some bartering system. God, you rescued me, so here I'm going to do this. Or it wasn't even a well-organized plan to change the world, caring for the poor, you know, top-down, you know, stimulus package kind of thing. It wasn't even that Jesus needed it. What she understood and what is placed before us today to understand and what she remembered was that there was this fundamental reality that she was made to worship Jesus. Like a glass is made to hold water. Like a home is created to house a family. Like a wave was made to crash against the shore. She was made to worship Jesus, that her whole life, her whole being, her whole existence, both in this present age and the age to come, that it was always about and always created to worship Jesus as the only one. Her worship and our worship, all the praise that can ever be sung, exists not to 
Not because God needs it, because Jesus needs it, or because it changes the world. It exists for our good. That we're never more alive, never more ourselves, never more who we were made to be than when we praise Jesus just because we've seen Jesus and we've come to know Jesus and we are standing before him today and we are never ourselves more than when we sing hallelujah to him. Worship doesn't exist because things are going well. Praise doesn't happen because things are put back together. Praise begins and exists because Jesus exists. And we've seen him, and as we see and know him, we come to the realization that we were created to adore him all the days of our lives. And then in the end, Jesus says, she did a beautiful thing, he says. She did what she could, he also says. And then he even says, wherever the gospel is preached, what she did will be told there. She also, Jesus says, understood that he needed to be prepared for the grave. For weeks, Jesus had been telling his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. For weeks, he's been saying he's going to die. What Jesus is saying is she understood that he was a dead man walking. She understood that he had come to Jerusalem, not just for the Passover festivities, not just to be with his friends, not just to pick a fight with the Pharisees, but he came to die. And understanding this and recognizing this makes all the difference in the world. She sees him as the lamb going to be slaughtered. She sees him as the suffering servant who's going to lead the way. She sees him as the king who has come to pay for all sin and death and sickness and evil. Perhaps the reason she's so gripped with, a, with an ability to give everything that she has to Jesus and his kingdom is because she realizes what he has and what he is giving is far greater than any material good she could ever acquire. And perhaps she also understood that Jesus was all she would ever need and all she would ever really have. Money comes and goes, possessions come and go, jobs come and go, industry, cities rise and fall. But what she will have and what she will exist for will always be Jesus. We haven't praised Jesus alone until we've realized 
that we only have Jesus. And he is more than enough. I think that's why Michael Card says that all praise begins in the desert. Because it's in the desert that we realize he is all we'll ever need. And he is more than enough. Even if we die of thirst, die of starvation, he is still worthy. His hope extends well beyond our fears. The hope of the cross surpasses our lifespans. His hope goes deeper than our pain. This whole series, we've quoted Barbara King Solver, who says, the very least you can do in life is know what you hope for. And the most you can do in life is live right up under its roof. Not just knowing what you hope for, but living underneath that hope, inside of it. Like a shelter that we cozy ourselves in. Like a roof or a tree that we live under and live beside. The reason I said that this passage always pierces my cynicism is because it's it's this passage that, that perhaps more than any other opens my eyes to what it looks like to live inside the hope of Jesus. Living right up next to it, underneath the hope of his life. It means claiming your place, claiming your place as a person of worship of the Son who would die to heal the world. A person of hope is a person who understands that that where Jesus is going is not just a tragedy, but it's also the hope of the world because he's not only going to give his life for for some sort of martyr idea, but he's going to give his whole self for the forgiveness and the redemption and the restoration of all sin, death, evil, sickness, pain, suffering. He's going to embody it. He's going to experience it. He's going to take it on. And on the other side of it is for salvation and forgiveness for multitudes. Living inside hope means pouring out your life before that incredible generosity. It means a radical giving to the mission of Jesus. Also nestled in here is Jesus saying that the poor will always be among the church. Not saying that there's always going to be poor people, but he's saying the church will always make themselves and place themselves among the poor because they know there's a greater lasting hope. And so this morning, I I want us to evaluate our praise and our cynicism and our ability to worship. Is Jesus worthy? Is he worthy of coming and giving everything that we have to him, even amidst suffering and scarcity and not knowing where the next meal or paycheck will come from? Can we praise Jesus from the desert places of life? 
Can we lay down our cynicism that would seek to be above it, outside of it, detached? I really want to invite you this morning to think about that, reflect on those truths, even as uh, we're going to continue now uh, through this worship guide to, to discuss with the people that you're with, to maybe even confess, to say out loud, to listen to the Spirit about these things. Then even respond in worship and going around the rest of our days. I wonder what it would be like if Monday through Saturday this week, we were a people of hopeful praise. Let me pray for us as a church. Jesus, we, we come in desperate need. A lot of us in hard pain, isolation, discomfort, uncertainty, it's all there. Create in us a heart of praise. Create in us an ability to worship you. Give us a heart and a body and a mind that sees you as the greatest hope. Teach us in this moment to live right up inside and underneath the hope that is your kingdom.